Um, kudos to those who braved all of the things that could have hindered you from coming last week. Um, but we looked at a passage where, where we see the issue of sin. Uh, we see our tendency to sin, but then we see how God redeems us from that sin. And, and he redeems us in what we saw in, in the, the scripture in Ephesians. He redeems us in a way um, that we would have never dreamed up. He says, in order to be free from sin, expose it. In order to be free from the burden of sin, in order to remove the burden of sin, make it visible. Things that we would try to avoid in order to find freedom. We try to shove sin away. We try to hide things um, and, and we think we're free when things are hidden, Paul says the opposite. He says, you want to be free, expose them. You want to be free, bring them to the surface, make them visible. Um, and, and why? That was kind of the question last week. Why should we do this? Is it because God's into public humiliation? Um, no, it's because God's redemption is for sinners. Jesus is for sinners. And so when we come to Jesus with our sin, present, when we confess and when we believe, um, as Paul says, and he quotes from Isaiah, he says, awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And this process of Jesus coming, coming to earth, paying the debt for the heart for sinners, so that sinners who were, and we saw that sinners who were in darkness, we saw last week, sinners who were dead in sin, when Christ sh shone, when Christ shined, shone, where's my English majors, shone? When Christ shone on you, um, that still feels weird. When Christ shined upon you, there, I'll just repeat the text. Uh, when Christ shined upon you, you who were darkness, we're made light. And so Christ coming, dying for sinners, making darkness light, this is called redemption. That's redemption. God saw sin. He saw what it had done to humanity. And then he sent Christ to redeem us from our current state, a state of deadness, a state of darkness. And he made us, he brought us into the light. And as we saw last week, that which was light or that which was visible became light. Darkness became light. Like God's redemption altered our state. We once stood as enemies, now we're children. We once stood as, stood as sinners, now we are redeemed. That's the beauty of redemption. And there's this tension that comes when we're talking about redemption. We're trying to understand what redemption is. And I think Charles Spurgeon nailed the first part of it, um, the, the one side of the tension. He said, speaking of redemption, he said, nobody else but God would have ever thought to justify those who are guilty. No one else but God would have ever thought to justify those who are guilty. And that makes sense, right? If, God, if, if you were in God's shoes and you looked at a humanity that was once perfect, that is now in shambles and destroyed and tainted and hostile and murderous and shameful and foolish and all the things we looked at last week, why would you want to deal with that? See, my wife and I... Um, we, we're good friends with our realtor who we bought our house through, and we're always kind of interested in, in housing things. And so a house opened up. We're like the snoopier, snooper neighbors. A house opened up a few blocks away, and so today he went and took us and looked at it. And the problem was, is with this house, the boiler was bad. There was some water damage. It had a pool in the backyard, which sounds great until you have kids. And then it sounds like, it's like, hey, there's a torture chamber and probably a murder house in your backyard. Um, and I'm like, well, that takes the... But, but we looked at this house. Um, we looked at this house, and we saw it, and we're just like, it's not worth it. It's, it's not worth an investment. It's not worth putting money into. It's just kind of, we're not going to get anything out of this house. And that would have been totally acceptable for God because not like God looked at, at a house that was corrupted. He looked at a hole in the ground where a house used to be. That's, how, that's what our sin did to us. It destroyed us. We were not even, there's nothing to put together. But he looked at that and he said, that can be beautiful. And not only did he look at it and say like he was taking a walk out and saw humanity and was like, oh, that fallen wretch humanity, I can make that beautiful. 
God didn't stumble upon it. God ordained that he would redeem us. God desired from the foundations of the world, Ephesians 1, what we opened with, said that he was going to redeem us. And so that's the one side. Who would have thought about redemption outside of God? But on the other hand, God made us in his image. And God is a creator. That's the first thing we learn about God. In the beginning, God created. God is a creator. He created ex nihilo, which means out of nothing. Um, there's your Greek lesson today that most of you probably already knew. He created out of nothing. There's nothing there, and God drew forth creation. And the joy of being made in the image of a creator God is that he's given us, because we're made in his image, imprints of him. We have tra godly traits inside of us, and, and part of that is we're creative. We are creative because we're made in the image of a creator. None of you are creators. We're all great manipulators, though. God is the only one who creates. We just manipulate things. But God has made us creative in what we do with his creation. God's given us skills and gifts and talents for that. And the more I think about how creativity manifests itself in our culture, and we see so many ways where people are creative, the more I think about it, the more I see that creativity mimics redemption in small, understandable ways. Creativity mimics the redemption that Christ worked in us in small, understandable ways. So you see what some people see as, as dirt, and water um, and other things, it's like that's dirt and water. But if you walk by the, the pottery annex over attached to the Adam Center, you see people taking dirt and mud and water and making beautiful pottery out of it and shaping it and forming it. Some people look at ugly tar-colored rocks and they realize that they could clean those and polish them into diamonds and sculptures. Random colors that are just kind of throughout nature can be harvested and put on a bland tan uh, canvas and it can be turned into an attractive painting. Things that on their own are bland can be brought forth into something that's beautiful. Sand, sand that's everywhere in the world, that's underneath our feet and dirt and rocks, that stuff can be polished and turned into glass and it's used to run computers. There's this organization that is constantly happening through our creativity. Uh, to, to take what is raw and to form it into something. That's redemption. You're redeeming something. You're taking something in a current state and you're moving it into a different state. God cre created us and the first thing he did, he said, subdue the world. Subdue it. Take this raw, untamed world and subdue it. Redeem it. Make it yours. Harness it. Transform it. Take what is raw and turn it into something of value. For those of you who are here, when Hugh Welchel was here, he called this flourishing, and we always kind of use, uh, some of my friends always use hashtag flourishing because it's fun. I don't know why. We have no purpose for it, but it came from Hugh Welchel, so we'll see something and just be like hashtag flourishing. Um, but he said in your job, he said your job, because college students are notorious for hating their jobs, um, your job is part of human flourishing. Because what's happening, God made us to work. Before the fall, God said to Adam, we just talked about it, he said, fill the earth and subdue it. Before sin happened, work existed. God wants us to be workers. And he says, uh, in work, you're redeeming work for wages. You're taking your talents, your skills, your ability, whatever it is, and you're redeeming it for wages. Wages stabilize the economy, and then it produced your wages purchase products, which also stabilize the economy. It's part of flourishing. And it's us, as we're working, we're redeeming things. My body, my person, 
can go into a workforce, stand there, and from that I could produce, uh, I could produce a salary, I could produce a home, I could produce a family that I could support monetarily. There's a flourishing that happens. There's, there's a growth that happens from that. But all of these things mimic redemption. And I say they mimic redemption in a way where the ultimate redemption is not earth into art or work into wages. The ultimate redemption happens when sinners are restored and redeemed through Christ Jesus. That's the ultimate redemption. And on one hand, we can't imagine it, but on the other hand, we look at creativity and we see people constantly redeeming things from one state into another. And what Paul is going to show us today is a way in which we can participate in this beautiful pattern of redemption in a way that's deeper than just making art, in a way that's deeper than just showing up to work. But Paul's going to show us as Christians how we can participate in the most beautiful act of redemption ever. And so that's what we're going to look at today. But I just want to pray again before we get rolling. Um, so Lord, we, we come before you today uh, and we want to be in awe of what it is you've enabled us to do through the cross. Lord, we want to bear in mind um, what Paul has been discussing throughout the book of Ephesians. And Lord, more importantly, we want to, what, what Paul is getting at today, um, an idea of being a redemptive Christian powered by the Holy Spirit, God, we want that to happen because when the University of Montana is filled with students who are passionate about redemption and led by the Holy Spirit, people will sing your praises. People will be converted. People will see the worth and weight and beauty and splendor of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we pray um, that in this place, the Holy Spirit comes and it makes us able to hear that it whispers to us the things that your te the text is declaring boldly so that we may apply it, so that we may love it, so that we may live it. And God, we give you this time. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. So, um, I, we kind of talked a little bit about what Paul was doing last week. And Paul really, he's, he's slingshotting into this passage, right? We're reading this, bearing in mind it's a letter meant to be read. What we're taking a semester and a half to get through, it took the people in, in Ephesians like 15 minutes. Um, so we're a lot slower than them. And so we want to bear in mind this, this thing of redemption that Paul was just talking about. And he's slingshotting us into this conversation. He's saying, you have seen the mercy of Christ on sinners. You have seen Christ's power over sin. You have seen that Jesus is Lord over sin. Christians are not to be stuck in sin because they are freed from sin. And now he says this in verses 15 and 16. Look carefully then how you will walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. And so you, you see this here. He says, look carefully as to how you walk. And, and specifically, it's, it's got a tone like see to it. It's not passive. Like I could look carefully at how I'm walking kind of passively and not care. But there's an active tone Paul's saying here. He's pleading with you saying, look carefully. Pay attention to how it is you're walking. And he says, don't be unwise. Be wise. So to, so to pay close attention to how it is you're walking, you're being wise. And what Paul's saying here when he's talking about wisdom, he's not picking on the ones of us in here who are normal students, who aren't 4.0 students. Um, Paul's building off of the gospel here that he just established for us. And this works because we know, and what Paul's saying here when he's talking about wisdom, it's not true wisdom. It, or it's, it is true wisdom. It is not worldly wisdom. 
Paul's talking about real wisdom. He's not talking about this wisdom that the secular world thinks of, or if you just start thinking about wisdom and you conjure up images of old men sitting on sticks in the Himalayas, things like that. That's not what Paul is talking about here. And we know that because Paul has established a pattern of this. If you look in 1 Corinthians 19 and 21, um, look at what's happening here. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? And so basically when he's talking about the scribes, like where is the lawyer? Where is the debater? Where is the politicians? Where are these people with advanced degrees? Um, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. And so I love how, how Paul writes this. He says, in God's wisdom, wisdom is not enough. In God's wisdom, the wisest, smartest, most attuned person cannot be saved. That is in God's wisdom that that is so. You cannot, through worldly wisdom, understand what it is the Bible is talking about. And that's why I love it, how we, we have religious studies here, and you've got people with advanced degrees and textual criticism who come and they speak on the Bible in these classes. And you should. The secular world, it's, 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 it's a legitimate area of study to study areas of religion. But they don't understand this. They can be wise about it. They can know how to read it. But it's not worldly wisdom that teaches us things about Scripture. It's the wisdom of God. It's the folly that Paul is preaching here. So if Paul's not promoting some Jedi, Sensei, bearded, old wise man, what is he referring to? What is this wisdom? And this is a legit question. Where do we get this wisdom? Are we Christians? Do we just reinvent words? Um, is that what we do? We say, well, that's wisdom, but this is wisdom. And we just kind of leave people in limbo. Because Job, um, I sound, I'm part German, um, and I claim the Swedish side because it's more exciting. And I... John Lumen claims German, so I can't do that. Um, but when I, my grandparents were Job's, my great-grandparents, and sometimes it slips out and I say Job like I was a German. Anyway, not talking about a German Job. Job 28. I don't know why I said that. Um, starting in verse 20, Job is asking this very same question. From where then does wisdom come? And where's the place of understanding? If it was in the wisdom of God to foil the wisdom of the world, where do we find Wisdom. Where do we find understanding? Is it hidden from the? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say we've heard rumor of it with our ears. So he's saying wisdom's gone. Death has heard rumors of it. Where is this wisdom? God understands the way to it, and He knows its place, for He looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When He gave to the wind its weight and appointed the waters by measure, when He made a decree for the rain and away for the lightning of the thunder. Then he saw it and declared it, and he established it and searched it out. And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil, that is understanding. You see, wisdom, the wisdom that Paul is talking about here, wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Wisdom is knowing and worshiping God. Wisdom is dug down deep in the reality of a saving God who exists and has given us a revelation in Scripture. That's the wisdom that Paul is talking about here. And so he's saying, do not walk as unwise, but walk as wise. And why is this wisdom distinct? Why is Paul making this point? 
We'll look back at verses 15 and 16 of chapter 5 of Ephesians. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. And so he's saying be wise, but that means something. And What does it mean? He says making the best use of time because the days are evil. Are there any people in here who were like raised in a church or like hardcore King James people? Okay, a few of you. Okay, this is where the, I think the King James Bible like nails it in this because the King James Bible isn't, in the King James text, they're not afraid of biblical words. Where other, and I mean that because oftentimes they're hard to understand. Um, and and some, like the ESV and the NIV and even the NASB, they have kind of changed the words here to make it more easy to understand. And I think there's a place for that. But what the King James says here, I think totally alters how we view um, verse 16 in the text here. Um, because, and I think this is an important distinction, because with worldly wisdom, we can make the best use of time. If you, if you were to bring this into the business building, into the Gallagher building, and be like, hey, don't walk as unwise, walk as wise, and make the best use of time because the days are evil. They might disagree to the extent of what evil is, but they're all for efficiency. They're all for making the best use of time. And, and so I'm, I, my idol is efficiency. My wife is inefficient. <laughs> and, and that is a strain on our relationship sometimes. <laughs> But sometimes my desire for efficiency can overwhelm my desire for love, and that's not right. And so efficiency isn't what this text is talking about here. Efficiency isn't what Paul is writing this for. And that's why I think that that, that phrase um, that the ESV uses, to make the best use of time, I don't think fully gets at it. Because even the most efficient person will miss the meaning of this text. And that's why I love the King James reading. And so I'm just going to read it to you because you get some other really fun words in verse 16. And I, I want to read it in a British accent, but I'm not going to. Um, I don't know why. I was it's King James in British. See ye there? No, um, anyway. That was like an old dying rat. Not Anyway. See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. When we fear the Lord, when we understand the weight of the gospel, we become infinitely wise because we've seen true redemption. And because we've seen true redemption, we now seek to redeem our time. And we see that redeeming our time is the best use of our time. And what, is it, what do I mean when I say redeem our time? Is that just another Christian word here? And that's why I think some texts have, have changed it. To redeem our time means to turn it Godward. Walk as wise. Turn your time Godward. This word that the King James translates as redeemed here is used four times um, in the Greek text of the New Testament. Two times that exact same word for redeemed is used in terms of Christ redeeming us from the law and redeeming us from sin. Taking us and transforming us from deadness and bringing us into a state of holiness through Christ. The word's tied to redemption. The other time it's used is used in Colossians 4.5 where Paul makes the same point where he says this, Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of time. 
And so again, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, redeeming your time, pointing that time towards God, adding value to it, not by being efficient in your conversations, not by being fluent in what you're communicating, but by consciously, because you're wise, because you've seen wisdom in the gospel, because God has granted you salvation, turn that towards Christ. Pull that in a Godward direction. Now, we are not Christ. Okay? We can't redeem our time in the same way Christ has redeemed us. Christ was unique in that. None of you will ever go into a conversation and single-handedly redeem a person like Christ redeemed us. It won't happen. Okay? So rest assured, you could sleep well tonight. That burden is not on your shoulders. You are not the redeemer of the world. But we can be intentionally redemptive with our time. We can be intentionally redemptive with our time. And I would argue that that's really how Christians ought to live. That's the weight of Christian living, is being re intentionally redemptive with our time because God has given us a wisdom that's greater than the world's wisdom. And I love how Paul uses the word. God's given us a folly that's better than the world's wisdom. God has given us a folly which has enhanced our vision so that we can see and respond redemptively to all things through the gospel. Everything we see, we see through the lens of the gospel. We see through the lens of, lens of ultimate redemption, and that allows us to bend and pull all things towards the gospel. This is the first point of our text tonight. Wise Christians redeem their time. They don't just make good use of their time. They don't just fill their time. They redeem their time. They're intentional about their schooling. They're intentional about their relationships. They're intentional about everything because they have seen true redemption. They have experienced true redemption. And now they live to point to that. And they live to see their life because you deserve death. You've been given another life. You see so many people who have survived cancer who have now devoted their life to fighting cancer. Why? Is it because their, their arms are getting twisted? No, it's because they've got a new look on life. And they want to, to spread awareness for what it is they beat. We beat sin. And so we should be people who are consumed with pointing people to the cure. We don't have to find it. It's not obscure. We just have to show it. And what does this look like, right? We want to get to the practical things. What does this look like to redeem your time? Paul knows where we're going. Verses 17 and 18. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So how are we to redeem our time? Paul gives us two points. Know the will of the Lord and be filled with the Holy Spirit. How do you redeem your time? Know the will of the Lord, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul plays a little game here called parallelism. You see it a lot in wisdom literature in the Bible. If you take literature classes here, you'll see modern-day writers who use parallelism to stress a point. And, and, and you see that parallelism here because foolishness is contrasted with knowing the will of God. Foolishness is antithetical. It is opposite to knowing the will of God. And debauchery is contrasted to being filled with the Spirit. And these really are great contrasts when you sit down and think about it. When I was writing the sermon, I, I got a, a pen and paper, and I did the old holy, sacred art of sermon prep where you just draw a line and write on two sides of it. What, what, is, what is foolishness? What do you think of when you think of foolishness? What do you think of when you think of the will of the Lord? And foolishness is insincere. It's trivial. It's wasteful. It's a life choice with, which lacks discernment. 
It's kind of fly by the seat of your pants, don't plan, don't care, just carpe diem kind of stuff. Knowing the will of God, on the other hand, is rooted in discernment. It's precise. It's tactful. It accomplishes something. It has a, a distinct focus. It's purposeful. It's diligent. And it's producing. There's something that's produced from that. Drunkenness, drunkenness wears on people who aren't drunk. And I think it's funny because we all love TV and movie drunks. They're great. They're funny. We love them. They're silly. I like, I'm a big How I Met Your Mother fan, and I realize there are whole episodes that go by where everybody's drunk, and I love them. They're just hilarious. That's not how real drunk people are. Real drunk people are drooly, sweaty, slimy, sleeping messes. Um, and, and they're not fun to be around. They're a burden on society. They're a burden to those who aren't drunk with them. Drunkenness is destructive. Um, you never get somebody breaking a window downtown who had just gotten done drinking coffee and was just ready for a hoot. <laughs> that's, that's not how it works. Drunk people are naturally destructive. They, they, it destroys relationships. It's, it's shameful. No one ever wakes up, passed out drunk in the morning and says, I don't remember what happened, but I probably taught third graders how to read. <laughs> never happened. It's always like, I don't know what happened. I hope I don't find my phone. All right, right? No, it's, it's shameful. There's, there's things that happen that we're not proud of, that we don't want. And we see these things. Um, it, it, it's, it's not other-oriented. It's selfish. You don't really care about other people when you're drunk. There are friendly drunks, um, but I guarantee you uh, they're not really concerned about you. Um, and so alcohol is also a depressant. It depresses people. That's scientifically, alcohol is categorized as a depressant. Doctors use alcohol as a depressant. Where a life being filled with the Spirit is fundamentally other-oriented. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Each and every one of those things is not directed inward, but outward. I'm always at peace with myself. I'm, I don't need someone to tell me I'm at peace with myself. But peace happens between me and someone else. I'm gentle with myself. Um, the one thing my wife says I'm not with her and not with Owen is gentle. And we, like, I'm just, she says I have sausage fingers, and I, I'm sporadic with what I do. I'm not gentle. Um, and so I remember when we were dating, I'd try to pull, like, the smooth, like, arm over the shoulder thing and, like, concuss her. And it's just like, you're not gentle. I'm gentle. I can hit myself, slap myself. I'm fine. But gentleness involves somebody else. The Holy Spirit is other-oriented. It's constructive. We say the Holy Spirit builds community. It builds community. It constructs community. It's honor-bearing. The Holy Spirit produces attributes of thanksgiving and helpfulness and humility inside. And where alcohol is a depressant, the Spirit is a stimulus. Where alcohol dulls your senses throughout the whole body, the Holy Spirit enlivens our senses throughout the whole body. And if that's not enough of a reason, the previous passage said that these things have no place in the church. Have nothing to do with them. They have no place, they do not belong, but look at how much better it is. It's not that God is killing fun, it's that God has something better. And so wise Christians live redemptively by knowing the will of God and by being filled with the Spirit. But this brings us to our second point. It's not just that God wants us to, it's that redemptive Christians need the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit. In one sense, Paul's going out of order here. Because you can't know the will of God in your life without the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit is the seal of our salvation. Paul says that in Ephesians 4.30. He says, the Holy Spirit was a seal for you of your redemption. 
It was simultaneous with that. It's a gift that Jesus gave us, which holds us, seals us, and labors in us for our salvation. And we cannot know the will of God outside of salvation if we're not filled with the Holy Spirit sealing our salvation. That makes sense. The will of God needs to be for those who are in the will of God. And those who are in the will of God are given the Holy Spirit. All Christians have the Holy Spirit. It's not this secret code that you get to unlock when you get to like level 60 mage Christianity, that you go into the ceremony and there's candles and stuff and, and the Holy Spirit comes. We see throughout scripture that the Holy Spirit is a gift given to us simultaneous with our salvation. It accompanies our belief. But for many Christians who have the Holy Spirit, we wrestle hard trying to ignore it. We wrestle hard trying not to heed it, trying not to hear it, trying not to realize it's inside of us. And why is it essential for us to have the Holy Spirit to know the will of God? Because in John 16, Jesus says it's the Holy Spirit who guides you. He says it's the Holy Spirit who will declare to you the things that are Christ's. Christ's will is Christ's. God's will is God's. The Holy Spirit's job is to declare that to you. And most importantly, what the Holy Spirit does in John 16 is this. John 16, 10, and this is in the middle of Jesus. Says, he says, I'm sending the helper. He says, he's going to come concerning sin or concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Why do we need the Holy Spirit? Because Jesus is gone. And because Jesus is gone doesn't mean that we're headless down here, right? The old military adage like, cut off the head, kill the snake. It's like, because Jesus is gone, Jesus is not physically here, doesn't mean that we Christians are rendered useless. But the Holy Spirit is in us, and Jesus sent that. He sent us the parakletos, the helper, to point us to Christ, to remind us of Christ, to push inside of us who is Christ. I think I talked, uh, I think it wasn't here, the, the verse that says, the Holy Spirit is inside of us, crying, Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit will not allow us to shake Christ, and the Holy Spirit has come because Christ is gone. And the Holy Spirit is a way in which we bridge this world to the next world. It's enabling us to live here being mindful of there. And Paul talks about this in Corinthians again. Corinthians 2, 12 through 13. And look at the, the specialness of this. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. That we might understand. So the spirit accompanies understanding that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Does that mean you cannot understand things given you by God unless the Holy Spirit is with you? And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. You see, we seek to understand things through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is our interpreter of, of who we should be and who God is in our own life. And because we are saved and because we possess the Spirit, Paul says, you have a special standard of wisdom that I'm holding you to. None of you are without cause. The Holy Spirit is revealing things to you, spiritual things, things from God, not, not ideas from man, not precepts for the church, but, but, but things from God. And the Holy Spirit is teaching you those things. You should obey them. You should heed them. You should hear these things. And that's why Paul, with all sincerity, is saying, Look closely to how you walk. Pay attention to how you live your life. Check what it is that stirs your heart. Check how it is you spend your time. 
because you have been given freely the helper who labors inside of you to assist you in wise, redemptive living. That means if as a Christian, we are wasteful and we are hurtful and we are harmful and we are foolish and we are full of drunkenness, that means that you are neglecting the greatest power God has left us with here on the earth. You are not living as Paul started chapter 4, within a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So what does the Holy Spirit have to do with the will of God? And what does the will of God have to do with redemptive living? Everything. You cannot live redemptively without the Spirit of God because the Spirit of God proclaims to us the will of God. And without the will of God, we have no idea what we're living for. What are we living for? We have no purpose. But the Holy Spirit is the best preacher to have ever lived. The Holy Spirit can stir, he can convict, he can exalt, he can bring low. The Holy Spirit puts the best preacher you've ever heard, he puts me to shame, right? Because that's what you guys thought of. Um, I know, I saw it in your eyes. Um, The Holy Spirit's job is to preach to us. And through the preaching of the Holy Spirit, he wishes to point us to the glory of Christ. That's the job of the Holy Spirit, to preach to you in a way that you're pointed to the glory of Christ. And because the Holy Spirit, so this is flowing here, this is systematic, because the Holy Spirit, which accompanies our salvation, preaches to us the glory of Christ, we are so attracted by that that we are now motivated by the glory of Christ. And we see God's will in being the glory of Christ. And so what we want to do is to attach God's will and God's glory to our lives. That's what the Holy Spirit wants to do. He's saying, that's God's glory. This is God's will. How does that impact you? But the thing is, is God's will is his glory. We're getting really philosophical here. What's God's will? God's will is his glory. God's will is worship. God's will is for us to give glory to him. And so what does that look like for us? If God's will is glory... If God's will is worship, what does that look like for us? It looks like go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, teaching them all I have commanded, baptizing them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit. What is God's will for you in your life? God's will for you is his glory. And how is that achieved? Through worship and evangelism. And see, those things are outside of context. You could put those anywhere. You could be at work worshiping and evangelizing. You could be at home worshiping and evangelizing. You could be in class worshiping and evangelizing. Those things are not distinct to the church, but they should be done outside of the church as well as inside of the church. And the wise person, this is what Paul's saying, the wise person through the help of the Holy Spirit is able to weave those two things together redemptively throughout their life. And so that's a lot of theology that Paul's put in four short verses. All of this stuff having to do with the will of Christ, having to do with what the Holy Spirit is doing inside of us. But what's the practical nature of this, right? The practical, the the theological answer is what is God's will for your life? To glorify him, to enjoy him, to treasure him. That's like you could go tell your friends, I went to GCF tonight and, and I found out God's specific will for my life. And maybe they'll come back next week. I always make the joke that when you say, tell college students, I know God's will for your life, the answer is, who is she? Um, That was a joke. Um, And it was all women who laughed. Guys were like, we'd never say that. Um, But what's the practical nature of this? The practicality of having a Holy Spirit which proclaims to us the will of God is that you 
being fully you, are able to creatively and uniquely bend things into the path of redemption that is specific to your life. You're in school. God has placed you on a campus with 15,000 other students who need the gospel. How are you redeeming your time here? You're at work. You're studying to be a teacher. How can God use that redemptively? How, how, how is what God has done in you, for you, how is that shaping your studies? Because if we're just in it because we want to get a job, well, that's not really redeeming your time. That's passing your time. That's filling your time. But God's redemption isn't separate from your time. You can get, how can you give God glory and promote Christ throughout your career? Accountants, forestry majors, math nerds, political science people. How can God teach you to redeem your time in that area? What is your thought life like? I love Paul says in Philippians, he says, forgetting what lies behind, I press forward, looking forward to the goal of the prize in Christ Jesus. Everything Paul does is weighed in the balance of Christ Jesus. How are you redeeming your time? How are you going to do that? We walk wisely. And again, Paul's practical things are still pretty philosophical. To walk wisely, what does that mean? It takes discernment. It takes hard work, but that's what Paul's preparing us for. We walk as wise. Because here's, here's the thing. I know God's will for you. I've said that. God's will for you is to worship him and make disciples. That's God's will. Now, God's will is also greater than that. Because God is sovereign, because God's in control over everything, he controls what you're going to study. He controls the jobs you're going to take. He controls the friends you're going to make. He's going to control the person you will date, the, the spouse you'll eventually have, the kids that you might potentially have. He controls all of that, and that is all inside of God's will. And we can know God's will by reading the Bible. We can know that. I just told you that. I, I quoted scripture. Go forth, make disciples of all nations. Repent and believe. That's God's will. We can know God's will through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit sits inside of us and preaches to us the things that are Christ. But I never read in the Bible a verse that said Tyler should marry Sarah. Never saw it. I never got a special revelation from God where I was sitting um, in a classroom and, and heard God whisper in my ear, Tyler, you're not going to be a journalist. You're going to be a pastor. Never happened. I never got that. So, so does that mean that, that God doesn't care about that aspect of our life? Because God doesn't have a bullhorn walking around telling us what we're going to do, who we're going to marry, what jobs we're going to have. No, that's not what it means. God is not disinterested in your life. It's not that God's got these big plans and he's going to manage that and the rest of the stuff. It's like God doesn't want to think about it. So you guys figure it out. Get, get, get the main, major on the majors. You worry about the minors. That's not what God's saying here. I knew God... God's will for my life was worship and evangelism. But I also knew that a subset of worship and evangelism is personal holiness. That's what worship is. Worship makes you holy. Worship is, is responding to an object of worth, and the, I won't go into it because you guys are already sitting here for a long time. Um, wor worship is responding to an object of worth, and worship is what sanctifies us. Worship is what changes us into something more like Christ. And being filled with the Holy Spirit allows me to resist God and to listen to him. And this is a huge part of worship. To resist, did I say resist God? To resist sin 
<laughs> and listen to God, okay? The Holy Spirit doesn't enable me to resist God, all right? The Holy Spirit enables me to resist sin and listen to God. And this is a huge part of it. This is a huge part of discerning the will in your life. You want to know, because we, we, we all know, none of you, as far as I know, have had a hand pop up on the wall and write who you're going to marry or what you're going to do. None of you have had that. So how are we to discern? This is an important thing, and Paul knew that. So what is Paul saying in Romans 12, 1 and 2? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your spiritual worship. So there's you. You're responding in worship. Worship is a response to salvation. What now? Do not be conformed to this world. So not only are we worshiping, but we're turning. We're repenting from. We're not responding to. Do not be conformed to the world. We be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. You see, worship produces discernment. Turning from sin and following God produces holiness, which enables us to choose rightly. You see, discernment isn't a written will. It's an informed decision. Discernment isn't someone telling you what to do. It's you learning how to act well. God didn't fax me a picture of Sarah on his holy prayer machine. He didn't do that. But what God did do is he put me in a position where I was in love with a beautiful Christ-loving woman. I said, this woman loves Christ. That's good. He put me in a position where I had, I had Christian friends older than me, and I had, I had Christian peers around me, and we discussed this. And they, they affirmed this relationship and they supported this relationship. And I was able to discern. I never had a moment. I was able to discern that my choice was to make a lifelong commitment to Sarah because this would ultimately increase my capacity for worship and evangelism. My decision with Sarah was not disconnected from God's will in my life, but it was deeply rooted in it. And so through the faculties that God gave me in resisting sin and choosing to follow God, I was able to discern what the right decision was. You see, here's the thing. Holiness will never exhaustively allow you to know the particular will of God in your life. Holiness will never let you exhaustively know the particular will of God in your life. But holiness will allow you to live that particular will. Holiness will enable you to make the right decisions in the right circumstances because the Holy Spirit's guiding us through those. And that's what Paul is writing about here. You want to learn how to redeem your time? You want to learn how to have the greatest joy in your life? Seek a greater worship. Because as we worship, we're able to discern better decisions. And this is a life that's exhilarating. This is a life that has meaning. This is a life that's joy-producing. This is a life that's building. This is a life that's lasting. This is a life that's purposeful. And this is a life that will work. It may not work in my lifetime. I may die before I ever see the work that happens from my faithful holiness and discern, discernment in my choices. But it will work in God's time because God's will always works. I might be doing something that my grandkids will see. I will never get to see it. But because I'm walking wisely and I'm seeking to worship God in every aspect of my life, I pray and hope that the decisions I make will have an impact in the generations yet to come. Now just briefly in closing, how do we get this? How do we get this discernment? 
Again, Paul is pushing to practical things. We like this idea. We love this idea. How do we get this discernment? How do we worship better? How do we figure this out? How can we best be exposed to the impulses and inclinations that expose us to a lifestyle of redemptive living? Paul's answer is the church. I didn't make it up. Paul did. This is what he says. Ephesians 5, 18 through 21. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So four things quickly, four things quickly (laughs) closing that Paul gives us to expose ourselves to the transformative power of the Holy Spirit. The first is fellowship with one another. Look at the first part of verse 19. He says this, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You see, Paul says we're to address each other in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Does that mean that our life is like a musical? Like the hills are alive with the sounds of the saints. Um, I'm not a singer. but, But actually, the early church, they would gather and they would recite hymns. But they wouldn't do it specifically for, for worship, but they would recite it to each other to encourage one another. They would sing the psalms to one another. They would, they would encourage one another through singing of hymns, and it was for the benefit of the body. And we preach scripture to one another. We encourage one another. We study the Bible with one another. We affirm, man, it is a sweet sound to have a friend disciple me in the Lord. It is a sweet sound to my ears when I have someone who loves Christ come and preach Christ to me and correct an aspect in my life that is not following Christ. And that, as Paul is telling us, that's where the Holy Spirit labors on us. The Holy Spirit labors on us in fellowship. Secondly, we worship God through music. 19b says this, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. And what what a crazy thing. You know, the Christian church is unique in that it's a singing church. There are very few religions which sing but all religions based on Jesus Christ have some aspect of singing in it. And isn't it crazy that that Paul here, writing inspired by the Holy Spirit, says that to live a life filled by the Holy Spirit is to live a life making melody with the Lord, praising him with song. Do you think about that when you're worshiping to music? Do you think about like, as I'm singing this song, as instruments are playing and there's, there's melody and there's harmony and there's all these beautiful sounds that God created, did you think the Holy Spirit is working on me through this? Like this is a way God is teaching me to discern his will. God is enabling me to be redemptive in my life. I very rarely think that, but I want to think it more. And the good news is, is that he's not telling us we all need to be musicians because the key instrument here is the heart. You could be on stage worshiping and the most talented guitar player, drum player, but drum players don't really have talent, so you could pick another instrument. Um, and you could do that, but if it's not worship from your heart, that's not what God's calling you for. We worship God through music, and God has given us a gift of leading that from our heart. We do so with thanksgiving. Verse 20 says, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We looked at this last week. The greatest cause for thanksgiving is the grace that God has given us in Christ. And when we're thankful, the Holy Spirit is laboring inside of us. The Holy Spirit is increasing our capacity for redemptive work. The Holy Spirit is preaching to us the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And lastly, we do so in submission to others. 
verse 21 says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. You see, the act of service is a part where the Holy Spirit works on us. In your community groups this week, you talked about this. Why has God given us to a life of service? How is this beneficial? And I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because really the rest of the book is talking about the submission. It's talking about how we interact with one another in a Godward way. But this is what I want to leave you with. Is are you walking wisely? You, we saw really a textbook example of how God changes us through the Holy Spirit. And that change impacts everything you do. And so are you being redemptive with your time? Are you seeking to pass the time? Are you seeking to survive the time? Are you seeking to fill the time? Are you seeking to see every moment that God has given us as a way in which we could grasp something and bend it into the scheme of redemption in little ways that we proclaim Christ, that we preach Christ, that we sing Christ, and that we affirm Christ. And as we do that, we become wise and we reap the benefits of joyful, redemptive living. Let's pray. God, give us this discernment. Oh, more importantly, Lord, fill us with this Holy Spirit. And Lord, I thank you that you have done that in our salvation. But God, pull the plugs out of our ears. May we, may we hear what the Holy Spirit has to say so that we can respond in worship. May you make us a sustainable army of redemptive livers. That sounds weird. Um, but I'm not going to change it. I want people in here who are weighted with the reality of redemption and busy with the work of seeking to weave redemption into everything we are involved with. Lord, as we worship right now, make us aware of the weight of it. May the Holy Spirit minister to us. Minister to us as we fellowship with one another with the rest of tonight and at Jakers. God, you've given us gifts that we don't understand and that having fun, and that singing songs, and that talking with our Christian neighbors is a way which you bring us into greater streams of redemption. We don't understand it, but we're grateful for it. And we seek to use it and harness it for your glory and for our good. We pray this in your name. Amen.